This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in this series with friends like these, where friends turn upon friends and become deadly. This week's case is the story of a kidnapping in a small town. I found this story fascinating as a strange and bizarre crime story, as well as a very interesting study of how a community responds to something so out of the ordinary. This is Chapter 3, The Kidnapping of Doe Roberts. Eads, Tennessee is a small unincorporated town located 25 miles east of Memphis. The Mississippi River creates the border between Memphis, Tennessee and West Memphis, Arkansas. Fifteen miles south of Eads lies the Mississippi border. Eads only boasts a population of between five and 6,000 residents. It lies in Shelby County, Tennessee, and in 1992, it was completely unincorporated. It had a post office, but no mayor, government, or police force of its own. Today, parts of Eads have been annexed to Memphis, with other parts still unincorporated. The United States Post Office was the only official government building in the entire community. Most community functions in Eads revolved around several small churches located in the county, as well as the Eads Civic Club. Alan Roberts and Martha Eudora Jones, who always went by the nickname Doe, were married in 1948 in Olive Branch, Mississippi. She was a waitress at the Rogers Cafeteria. Alan was a World War II vet, and after returning home, worked his way through college as a milk delivery man. In the 1950s, they were living in Ede and bought the Magnolia Grill. In 1961, they left the restaurant business and founded a successful chain of auto parts stores. They expanded the business to six stores. In the 1970s, they purchased a 150-acre farm in Eads and eventually built their home on it. Allen kept himself busy buying and selling land and developing properties around the county while Doe was very active in the church and in volunteer work and spent a lot of time planting and gardening on their farm. They both enjoyed square dancing and spent several nights a week at the Eads Civic Center with their square dance group. Doe and Allen had a close and loving relationship. Many in the community knew them well and respected them. They attended Eads United Methodist Church and served on the board as well as several committees. The church was very small, with only about 80 members, so everyone knew each other very well. Most of the Roberts' closest friends were their fellow church members. Doe was a petite 65-year-old with short gray hair. She stood only 5 foot 5 inches tall and was thin and highly energetic. She kept active by square dancing, attending aerobics classes, and gardening. However, she suffered from asthma and had to keep an inhaler close by. She had experienced a few severe asthma attacks that could have been life-threatening had she not gotten to the hospital so quickly. One of Doe's closest friends was a younger church member named Brenda Williamson. Brenda was in her late 30s and married to a firefighter. Doe and Brenda often sat together in church, and Brenda sometimes gave Doe rides to appointments or to go shopping. Doe had recently had cataract surgery and had stopped driving. Doe and Alan were both active in working to build up the membership of their church. They believed strongly in its future and had started a building fund for a new, larger sanctuary. They hoped that with new facilities, including space for a children's ministry, 
that it might attract more of the younger families buying homes in the county to join the church. They enlisted one of the church's younger couples, Karen and Carl Johnson, as well as a new member, Mike Coward, and their pastor, Jim DeBardelaban, to form a committee for this purpose. As well, they asked a longtime church member, Charles Lord, to join in this planning as well. Charles Lord was a retired comptroller for the Defense Depot in Memphis. He served as the church's finance chairman. Lord had been asked to oversee the church's finances due to his background in accounting, but he held such a tight rein over the budget that some members complained. Younger members, like Brenda Williamson, wanted to offer more activities for young people to attract new members, but Lord often rejected these suggestions, stating that the money needed to be saved for the building project. What good was a bigger building, some members pointed out, if the congregation roles continued to dwindle? The subject led to some lively debates during committee meetings. The building fund had grown to several thousand dollars. Doe herself made the weekly deposits to the bank. On Wednesday, August 5th, Doe attended the church membership committee meeting. Karen Johnson, Pastor Jim, Charles Lord, and others were all in attendance. Alan Roberts did not attend that evening due to a scheduling conflict. The next night, Thursday, August 6th, Doe and Alan went to the Civic Club to dance with the Top Spinners, their square dancing group, like they did almost every Thursday evening. Right before they left the Civic Club, the phone at their home had rang, and Doe had answered it. A man who said he was from Indiana told her he'd been out to one of the houses Alan had listed for sale. He said his name was Sam Wagner. The house he was interested in was located on Orr Road, and the man said he wanted to make an appointment for the next morning at 10 a.m. to meet Alan to sign papers to purchase the house. Doe told Alan that the man had an odd Asian-sounding accent. Alan put it on his schedule to meet the man out at the property the following morning. Because of this, they didn't stay too late at the square dancing group, returning home and retiring to bed early. On Friday morning, Alan backed his truck out of the barn on their property and down the driveway passing the house. Just as he passed, the garage door opened and Doe called out to him. He rolled down his window and she told him that the man with the Asian accent had just called again to confirm the appointment. He waved to her and drove on. He would always regret that he had not kissed her or even said goodbye before driving away. When he reached the house on Orr Road, about a 20-minute drive from his home, Brenda Keith, Doe's niece, met him there. Brenda, the daughter of Doe's brother Leonard, worked for Alan, helping him manage several of the Roberts' properties. Today, Alan and Brenda were working on the home's landscaping and began to lay sod in the yard while waiting for the man to show up for the 10 a.m. appointment. By noon, he had still not arrived. Ellen was disappointed, but not too surprised. In the property selling business, you never knew when someone would have a change of heart or find another property they preferred after considering yours. Ellen left the property around noon to take the truck to pick up some more sod. Once at the sod farm, he placed an order for a full pallet of sod. He was told it would be ready to pick up in a couple of hours. Ellen then drove towards home, stopping on the way to pick up two sandwiches for he and Doe to have for lunch. They had lunch together most days. When he arrived home, he noticed that the garage door was open and the house was unlocked, but Doe was nowhere around. The cart she used to haul gardening supplies and other implements was sitting at the back door. Mail that she must have picked up from the mailbox was still sitting in the cart. Ellen walked through the house, but didn't find Doe. However, he didn't assume anything was wrong. 
He assumed she was somewhere on the property and would return soon. So after eating his sandwich, he left hers on the table so she would find it when she got back to the house. He then left to pick up the sod and returned to the house on Orr Road. On the way to the sod farm, Ellen passed an 18-wheel truck stuck on the shoulder of the road. Like most good small-town citizens, Ellen decided to give the driver a hand. It took him just a few minutes to hitch a tow chain to the truck and help him get it back on the road. Afterwards, he continued on to the sod farm. However, when he arrived, the owner wasn't in, and since Ellen was making the purchase on credit, he hadn't brought money or a checkbook with him. The clerk on duty didn't know him, so Ellen had to wait for the owner to return before he could leave with the sod, delaying him almost another hour. He returned to Orr Road, where Brenda was still working, and together they continued to work laying sod until about 3.30 p.m. Ellen finally arrived home about 4 p.m. The first thing he noticed when he pulled up the driveway was that the garage door was still open. He knew Doe never left the door open that long, and it concerned him. He walked up to the back door, pulling out his house key as he went, but he needn't have bothered. The back door was unlocked. As he passed through the kitchen, he froze. The sandwich he had left on the table for Doe was still sitting there, untouched. Something was seriously wrong, Ellen immediately thought. The first thing Ellen thought was that Doe might have suffered a serious asthma attack and was lying unconscious somewhere. He began to frantically search the house. He searched each room, top to bottom, even in closets and beneath beds. When there was no sign of her, he even checked the attic. He searched outside all around the house, but found nothing. He then searched the barn, but still, she was nowhere to be found. Becoming more and more frantic, Ellen jumped into the golf cart that Doe used to drive around their 150-acre farm and began driving up and down the property, calling out to Doe. She could be lying somewhere unable to answer, he thought. He drove through the pasture, down to the pond, towards the fields, and through the pine trees. Still nothing. He headed back to the house. Maybe he'd missed a note she'd left. He searched every surface again, but there was no note. Although it was unlike her, maybe this time she forgot and had been picked up to run an errand with one of her friends. He began to make calls, hoping against hope it was just something this simple. He called Brenda Williamson, but she had not seen or talked to her that day. He continued to make calls, reaching another church member, Melinda Lancaster, as well as Charles Lord's wife, Sylvia. Neither had seen or heard from her. He pulled out the church directory and went down the list making calls. When that proved fruitless, he began calling family, including his sister Jean and Doe's nephew, William Paul Knox, to tell them that Doe was missing. He also called Brenda Keith, who came over immediately. The phone began to ring just as she arrived. It was just about 5 p.m. Ellen answered the phone in the kitchen while Brenda stood just feet away. The caller spoke with an odd Asian accent. His voice was high-pitched, and that, combined with the accent, made him difficult to understand. Your wife with me, he began, as soon as Ellen answered, unharmed. If you don't do what we say, we bust her head in. We want $100,000. We want you go in and take tape out of the answering machine and bring outside and crush and drive. I want you not call police on this. Ellen immediately promised to do whatever the man wanted. Just don't hurt her, he pleaded. Ellen did get a tape and take it outside to the driveway and crushed it under his foot. 
but it was just a blank tape he had. He later gave the tape from the answering machine to the FBI. He said he crushed the tape in case anyone was actually watching. He didn't want to give the kidnapper any reason to harm Doe. But it didn't really matter, since the answering machine wasn't on record when the kidnapper called. He then immediately called Doe's nephew, Bill Simmons. Bill worked at one of their auto parts stores and had since he was a teen. He was very close to his Aunt Doe. He was very protective of her, and Ellen knew he'd do whatever he could to help. Bill was also a large man and very strong, which Ellen thought they might need. As well, Ellen trusted his nephew Bill completely. They've taken her, he blurted out when he reached Bill by phone at the store. He told him what had happened, about Doe being missing and the ransom call. Bill said he would be right over. You have to call the police, Uncle Alan, he instructed. Ellen was afraid to call the police after the kidnapper's threats, but decided he needed their help to get his wife back, and so he made the call. However, he was afraid to do so from his house in case the kidnapper was monitoring him. He asked Bill to meet him at his friend's, the Williamson's house. He would use their phone to call the police. He next called his sister's son, William Paul Knox. William Paul was a home builder and also had a retail paint store. It was after 5 p.m. on Friday, and Ellen wanted to get the cash he needed right away to pay the ransom. He knew William Paul would have cash on hand, that he was sure he'd lend him to meet the kidnapper's needs. However, Ellen realized that the caller hadn't told him where or how to get the money to him. Never mind about that, he thought. He was sure to call back, and when he did, Ellen would be ready with the cash. William Paul said he would begin gathering the cash he needed. Ellen drove to the Williamson's house and pulled out the phone book to look up the nearest FBI office. Ellen told them about his missing wife and the ransom call. He was told that at this time, it would be considered a police matter, and he should call local law enforcement. Eads was too small to have its own police force, so Ellen placed the next call to the Shelby County Sheriff's Office. Once again, he related the details about his missing wife and the ransom call. All he could do now was wait, wait for detectives to arrive, or the kidnapper to call back. Ellen waited outside for the police. The light was beginning to fade. By now, two hours had passed since the kidnapper had called. Ellen's mind raced. What was Doe going through? Had they hurt her? He was worried that she might have an asthma attack due to the stress. He could hardly bear the thought of how scared she must be. He could raise the money. He just needed to be told what to do. He'd pay any amount to get her back. Doe was the last person in the world who deserved this, he thought. She wasn't just a good woman. She was the best person he'd ever known. She was always ready to help anyone, friend or stranger. She was the first person to arrive when someone was ill or hospitalized. She served all the members of the church, raising funds, volunteering for whatever the congregation needed, and she never forgot a birthday or anniversary or other special occasion and would always arrive with a card and a gift. She was loved by all her nieces and nephews like a mother. Ellen and Doe never had any children of their own, but they were both very special to their siblings' children, and Doe was like a second mom to many of them. One of the reasons they lived in a small community like Eads was because it was so safe. Everyone knew everyone, and it was like one big family. Nobody stood out as someone weird or dangerous or perverted. How could something like this happen in Eads? Doe and Ellen had worked hard for decades, to build their business and achieve financial success. They had never lived extravagantly, and they were just now in their golden years 
reaping the easy lifestyle from all their hard work. Money didn't matter, and Ellen would give it all up if it meant getting dough back. Detectives finally arrived almost an hour after they'd been called. They arrived in unmarked cars, but there were over a dozen of them. So much for subtlety, Alan thought. But it wasn't for him to tell the cops how to conduct their investigation, he told himself. The detective who was first in charge was Inspector Ramona Swain. After her initial questions to Alan and the others present, she decided she would call in the FBI for help. FBI agents arrived sometime after 9 p.m. that evening. By that time, Alan reports that he was numb with shock and worry. Some who were present, including his niece Brenda, would later say he seemed detached and almost emotionless. William Paul arrived and told Alan he had been able to gather $60,000 in cash. The rest he would be able to secure in the morning. Brenda Williamson reported that, while initially she had felt better when Inspector Swain arrived, she soon noticed that she seemed to be acting very hostile towards Alan. She was obviously immediately suspicious of him, but since when the wife is the victim, the husband is often the first suspect, it was perhaps normal. Brenda would say that anyone who knew Alan and Joe as a couple would know that he would be the last person who would hurt her. He adored his wife, and it was plain to see that they were happy together. By midnight, no further communication had come from the kidnapper. The FBI arranged to install recording equipment to trace any calls that came into Alan's home. Doe's brother, Leonard Jones, took it upon himself to search for his sister. Someone had reported that they'd seen a white Winnebago, a large RV-type vehicle, earlier that day that hadn't been seen before in Eads. Leonard drove for miles, searching for this vehicle. By 1 a.m., police officers in a nearby town found a white Winnebago parked in a motel parking lot to find out that they had been in Eads earlier in the day, having gotten lost on their vacation travels, and had made a U-turn in town to get back on the highway going in the right direction. It had been a false alarm, and Doe was not being held captive in the RV. Back at Allen's house, agents questioned Allen until about 2.30 a.m. They then left, and Allen went up to his bedroom. Still feeling sick and numb, he prayed for God's guidance. After praying, he lay down on the bed and said he was surprised when the next morning he realized he'd fallen into a deep sleep. He awoke at his normal time. But moments after waking, the nightmare of the day before hit him all over again. Alan got up and quickly dressed and headed downstairs, where agents were already sitting around the kitchen table. Brenda Keith was there and had let them in. She'd made coffee and tried to get Alan to eat some breakfast. He took a few bites, but instantly felt nauseous. Alan now regretted calling the FBI. The kidnapper still had not called back, and he wondered if he'd found out that he'd called the police and would now not try to contact him again. Had he given away his chance to get Doe back alive? He was sick with the thought. For a long time, Alan had owned a pistol that he'd rarely taken out of his dresser drawer. Now he took it out and wore it holstered in his belt. He would do so for several months. He no longer felt safe, and if Doe should need him to rescue her, he would be ready. Ellen wanted to make sure to have all the cash he needed when the kidnapper called, so with the help of the FBI, he was able to make arrangements to meet with his banker that Saturday morning. They had to drive into Memphis, about 40 minutes away. His nephew Bill went with him. Ellen was able to leave the bank with cash in the amount of $100,000. 
Brenda Williamson went through Doe's closet, instructed by the agents to try and determine what she was wearing the day before. They decided that she would have had to be wearing a pair of black flat-soled shoes, a checkered skirt, and a matching cotton top. FBI agent Joanne Overall was to lead the investigation on the Doe Roberts kidnapping. The first thing authorities began to tell everyone was not to share information or talk about the case with anyone else. It would become an oft-repeated instruction throughout the investigation. Some friends, family, and community members kept anything they knew to themselves, having been raised to respect and obey authority. Some couldn't help sharing information with others, and gossip between them flowed freely. On Saturday, the FBI took over formal jurisdiction of the case. The reason for doing so, they explained, was because Eads was located so close to at least two other states, Mississippi and Arkansas. If there was any presumption that Doe Roberts might have been transported over state lines, the FBI would handle the case. The first question FBI agents would ask themselves was the same one Ellen was asking. Why hadn't the kidnapper called again? Agents knew that the typical kidnapping for ransom was singularly focused on securing the money. So why hadn't he called to make arrangements to collect the ransom? But Saturday passed with no word. With nothing else to do while they waited for the call, FBI agents began grilling Allen's friends and family members. Most agree that they seemed to be trying to build some kind of case against Allen as the perpetrator. His sister Wilhelmina, or Willie, was grilled on Saturday and says they seemed to be trying to trip her up, asking her the same questions about her, her family, and Allen over and over, but in different ways. She finally lost her temper when they went around in circles with her about her children's birthdays, accusing her of saying she'd given one date and then changed it when asked later. I think I know my own kids' birthdays, she snapped at them, and what does this have to do with anything? This is ridiculous. She refused to speak with them further. Later, Alan would say that Bill Simmons stayed close to him this entire time and was arguably the person who was closest to both Doe and Alan and knew them the best. Not only was he like a son to his Aunt Doe, but he worked for them at one of their auto parts stores. He would know the most about his aunt, the relationship between his aunt and uncle, and even some of their financial information. However, neither the FBI agents or Inspector Swain ever questioned him. Doe had been taken on Friday, and only one call had come from the kidnapper that day. But the weekend passed with no further communication. On Monday, the media had got a hold of the story. Reporters began calling the house. The FBI had cautioned Allen not to make the kidnapping public, but that day he decided to make an announcement to the press. He hoped it might prod the kidnapper to call. My name is Ellen Roberts, he began. My wife is Doe Roberts. We have been married for 44 years. We have no children, and my wife is my life. This past Friday morning, my wife, Doe Roberts, was abducted from our home. I have not been able to obtain her release. I have no way to communicate with whoever is holding her. Therefore, I am asking the news media to broadcast this plea. I make this plea for mercy and compassion from whoever is holding Doe to consider her medical condition. Doe has severe asthma, and if she doesn't receive daily medication, her life is in danger. I appeal for Doe's release so that she can receive the necessary medical treatment that can save her life. If Doe is released unharmed, I will meet any demand. I will do whatever is necessary to obtain Doe's release. The statement went out to all local media stations the following day, Tuesday, August 11th. The FBI's media coordinator, 
Ed Bradbury went with Ellen when he made his statement in front of reporters. I don't think anyone could fake such physical and emotional distress, Bradbury said. I sincerely believe that Mr. Roberts had nothing to do with his wife's kidnapping. Two days later, with still no word from the kidnappers, Ellen made another press statement. This time, again against the FBI's advice, he offered a $10,000 reward for information that would lead to Doe's return. The FBI was afraid that they would be flooded with crank phone calls. However, no one came forward with any new information. Many neighbors and friends of Allen and Doe began to criticize the investigation. Most thought that the focus was solely on Allen and that no resources were being put towards any other theories. Neighbors said they weren't even questioned until several days after Doe disappeared. By waiting so long to question people, it was believed that information might be forgotten, jeopardizing the investigation. Meanwhile, pastors in the local churches were telling their members not to speak about the case to anyone because gossip and false information would be picked up by the press. But some didn't think this advice would help in finding Doe. The authorities, including the FBI agents and sheriff's department, told people not to talk amongst themselves, and church leaders were telling them to keep quiet so that information didn't leak to those outside of the community. Some of the community members did begin to talk amongst themselves and compare notes. The pastor of the United Methodist Church, the church that the Roberts had been members of for over two decades, was not making himself available to his congregants through this terrible time, and some were becoming disillusioned. When he was called the very first day that Doe went missing and told the terrible news, the caller said that he simply responded, Thank you for letting me know, and hung up. By mid-August, Doe Roberts had been missing for over a week, and the church members wanted to hold a prayer vigil for her. They approached Pastor Jim, but he told them he could not deal with it. So they contacted their former pastor, and he held the prayer vigil at the church on August 16th. The member who helped lead the vigil was Charles Lord. He spoke movingly of what a wonderful person Doe Roberts was. Charles Lord would step up as a lay pastor several times, taking over for Pastor Jim. A little over a week after the kidnapping with no leads, the FBI left Allen's house and returned to their central office. The media had also left. Willie, Allen's sister, was afraid people would stop looking for Doe and forget about her, so she led a campaign to tie yellow ribbons around trees and fences around the county to remind people that Doe was still out there somewhere. Allen had more posters made with the reward offer, and they were put up in every business in the county. He also paid to have it printed in local papers, hoping someone would come forward with any information. But summer turned to fall, and still no sign of Doe. Then on October 8, 1992, two months after Doe was taken, the kidnapper called for the second time. Allen had stayed ready, connecting his own tape recorder to the phone. As soon as he heard the strange Asian accent, he hit the record button. However, when he did so, it set off a tone that the kidnapper must have heard because he immediately directed him to go to a payphone. He said he would call there in four minutes. Allen rushed out to receive the call. When he got there, the phone was ringing. If you want wife back, the man said, you bring me $185,000. Must be all in unmarked $20 bills. Anything else, you never see her again. Wait, Alan quickly said. I can't have the money before Tuesday. Monday is Columbus Day, a bank holiday. The caller hesitated and then said, I call you Tuesday and tell you where to take money. He hung up. 
But Tuesday came and went. He never called. It was now November, and three months had passed with no sign of his wife. Alan was becoming more despondent. It didn't help when Agent Overall told him that there was probably only a 1% chance that Doe was still alive. Alan and Doe had been together every day for over 43 years. He didn't know how to go on without her, and now that so much time had passed, everyone else had left. They'd had to go back to their homes, jobs, and families, and Alan was left alone, with no answers, grieving for his missing wife. He had reached the point of considering suicide. He prayed night and day and asked God for direction, but he never received an answer from God either. One morning he woke up, and he realized that he could not end this life until he found out what happened to Doe. That was his only purpose now. But because his wife loved him so much and was such an unselfish person, he also knew that it would pain her that he was so unhappy. He heard her say, Find a way to be happy, Alan. He thought about where he and Doe had been the happiest, and it occurred to him that it was when they were square dancing. He would go back to meeting with his square dance group. Maybe he could receive some support and friendship there. Of course, when Alan began square dancing again, three months after his wife had gone missing, some felt it was inappropriate. How could he be out dancing so soon, they said. Didn't he care that his wife was gone? Was he that cold-hearted? They didn't understand that grief and loneliness can cause a person to lose all hope. Perhaps this was the only way he could keep from falling into complete despair. One person thought she understood what Ellen Roberts was going through. Esther Hammonds had been a widow for 27 years. She had never remarried after her husband's death by suicide. She'd learned to live independently and enjoyed her family and friends and her square dancing hobby. When Ellen returned to the group, she was one of the few who could understand that men who bottle up their feelings can lead to self-destruction. Men, she believed, did not feel free to share their negative emotions, and when they had no outlet to express this, it could lead to deep depression. She'd often wished she had seen the warning signs of her husband's despair, and she could sense the grief and loneliness in Alan, and her heart went out to him. At the end of the month, she asked him if he had any plans for Thanksgiving and invited him to share the meal with her and her family. He thanked her, but said he already had plans to spend it with his sister's family. She was glad he wasn't going to be alone. In December, Ellen started a conversation after square dancing with Esther. The next day, he called to invite her to dinner. She was not available as she was planning to attend a Christmas pageant at the Baptist church with her granddaughter. Would you like to come with us, she offered. He accepted. They attended the pageant, and afterwards they talked until the wee hours of the morning. He kissed her goodnight, and she wasn't sure what it meant, but she liked him, and she could tell that it lifted a great weight off of him to have her companionship. He called her the next day and invited her to have dinner in a nearby town. As they were sitting and waiting for their meal, Ellen burst into tears. When he was able to compose himself, he talked about how lonely he'd been since Doe had been taken. She told him she didn't think it would be a good thing to be seen together. People would talk. He said he just needed someone to talk to. Esther realized that this was not about romance. This was a man grasping for a life preserver, anything to keep him from sinking forever. He needed her, and that felt good. She wanted to help him the way she hadn't been able to help her husband. They continued to see each other. At the end of November, 
the FBI returned to Eads to do another thorough search of the Roberts home and property. They still believed he was the most likely suspect. They even dug in areas around the property that looked like it might have been recently disturbed. They also used a backhoe to turn over the area that he'd long used as a dump on the property. They found nothing and still had no other suspects. Allen raised the reward for information from $10,000 to $25,000. Then in December, friends of the Roberts began getting phone calls. First, Brenda Williamson and the cowards began receiving hang-ups. Then Brenda Williamson began receiving phone calls, always when her firefighter husband was away from home on duty. They were from a person who spoke in an Asian accent that sounded faked and in a high-pitched voice. They were very similar in nature, always along the lines of, you Robert's woman's friend, why you do nothing to help her, why her husband do nothing. He would then often rant and rave about how Doe was unwell, how she needed medicine, and how Alan refused to pay her ransom. Others that also received these calls were Brenda Keith, Melinda Lancaster, and Ronald Klein. When the kidnapper called Melinda, he told her she could ask three questions to prove that he had Doe. She asked him to tell her what committee she and Doe had belonged to together at the church. He answered correctly, extension homemakers. She asked him to tell her what her age was. He answered correctly, 66 or 67. He also answered correctly the name of their church. He then began to say that Alan paid him to kidnap Doe. He said Alan was not an honorable man and had a girlfriend. He said Alan knew Doe was alive. He then told her to tell Alan to contact him by 6 p.m. the following day, or he would kill Doe. She called the FBI. They came to her house and stayed around the clock for several days, but he did not call again while they were there. When they left, he began calling again. Robert's man not honorable. Make him pay me. He would then hang up. His fake offensive accent was so ridiculous, agents began calling him Charlie Chan a character from movies made in the 1920s and 30s. Chan was a detective who solved crimes, but the actor who portrayed him was first a Swede and then an American. He was a beloved character during that era, but later many would take offense to his over-the-top accent and the film's use of condescending Asian stereotypes. By this time, some of Doe's friends had heard about Alan's friendship with Esther Hammonds and were angry and upset, believing that he had moved on and was now dating other women. As a result, some began to believe that he might be responsible for Doe's disappearance. It seemed like the kidnapper was capitalizing on this sentiment, which meant he was privy to gossip that was flying around town. This would mean that he was an insider, perhaps a community member. Some would not entertain this idea. They could not believe that one of their own could be responsible, except perhaps for Alan Roberts, I guess. Agent Joanne Overall told Melinda not to contact Alan or, quote, have anything to do with him. This seemed to confirm to her that he was a suspect and probably responsible for her kidnapping or murder. But Melinda would also say that the FBI kept everything close to the vest. They would question her and other community members about everything they knew or suspected, but would never share any information with them in return. Some got tired of this and stopped speaking with the FBI. Ronald Klein was also called. To him, the kidnapper made more graphic threats. He told them that if Ellen didn't pay him, he would, quote, split Doe's head open. Another time, he threatened to cut off her arm. Robert was one of the call recipients who did call Ellen. Ellen always instructed him to call the FBI, which he did. Klein became very upset by these calls. 
At the end of the year, Charles Lord began telling people at church that he was working closely with the FBI to find Doe. He had a friend of the Secret Service, he said. Some were inclined to believe him since he had worked with the Defense Department before his retirement. Then Charles began mentioning to everyone that he was concerned because Ellen was carrying a gun on him. He first tried to get Ellen's friends to discourage him from this practice. When they would not, he began telling FBI agents about his concern. Charles then contacted Ellen directly and asked him to meet him at the church. The first thing Charles said to him was that he wanted him to know that he wasn't recording their conversation. This immediately served to make Ellen suspicious. Why would he say that? Charles then told him about his friend in the Secret Service, and now also said that this friend owed him a big favor. If you give me the $25,000 Charles offered, I believe he could turn up Doe's kidnapper real fast. Ellen told him he'd think about it, but what he was really thinking was that if this contact of Charles's could do this, why didn't he take him up directly on the $25,000 reward he'd been offering for some time? Charles Lord had inserted himself into the investigation so much that Agent Joanne Overall's chief source of information came from him. Charles began meeting with her regularly and feeding negative information to her about Alan. Overall would then question others about the information she was receiving, not telling them where it came from, which further caused them to believe that Alan was guilty of something due to all the questions about his character, habits, and behavior. Charles was described as arrogant and boastful. He also always liked to be in charge. The fact that he became buddy-buddy with investigators was seen by most as his need to look like he was important. Most didn't think much of it. That was just his way, they said. He even began bad-mouthing Ellen, telling church members, if Ellen doesn't think enough of Doe to do what has to be done to get her back, I will. I'll take the money to the kidnapper myself. Most just saw it as bluster and dismissed it. In January, Brenda Keith received a call from the kidnapper. He now demanded $190,000 and finally gave instructions for the money. She was to have someone place the money at the end of Great Oaks Road. The road stopped at a dead end and was not close to homes or other buildings. Brenda called the FBI. She did not tell Ellen. The time for the drop came and went. The FBI didn't call Ellen or act on it. Now, Charles Lord called several neighbors and church members to make an announcement. He had recently received calls from the kidnapper. He also had been allowed to talk to Doe. Doe had told Charles that she knew Alan would not pay the ransom. Then Sylvia Lord, Charles' wife, also said that she had received a call. Charles was there when she got the call. She told them that the caller told her that Doe was being sexually abused on a daily basis. Of course, this horrified everyone, and they reported it to the FBI. Again, they took no action at that time. What action did they take? Agent Overall asked Alan to take a polygraph test in January. He did and passed it, but they continued to suspect him of the crime. Alan would say that he believed Agent Overall believed he was truly innocent, but that Inspector Ramona Swain was 100% convinced of his involvement. The kidnapper continued to call several people over the next few months. He would talk for minutes at a time, giving instructions for the ransom money, criticizing Alan for not paying, calling him a not-honorable man, and threatening Doe's life. Some got so tired of it, like Brenda, that they began hanging up on him when he called. Charles and Sylvia continued to report calls, as well as Ronald Klein, Carl Johnson, and Brenda Williamson. The only one he didn't call was Alan Roberts. 
In February, Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode on national television about the Doe Roberts kidnapping. However, no good leads came in that helped solve her case. Then in March, the caller added another frightening element. He called Ronald Klein and mentioned his grandsons. He said they were in danger. He threatened him that if he didn't get Ellen to go to the bank and get the ransom money, he would retaliate against his family. Everyone who had received calls now were concerned for the safety of their family members, especially their children. One of the church members, a woman named Mary Linda Rose, and her mother began talking about these threats. They began to suspect that the caller was either a church member or someone who'd gotten a hold of the church directory. The reason they believed so was that he had threatened Carl Johnson by mentioning his sons. The Johnsons had three children, two boys and an infant daughter. The latest church directory had a picture of just Carl, his wife, and the two boys. Their daughter had not yet been born. They talked about this, but ultimately couldn't believe that someone close to them could be responsible. They did not report their suspicions. Another church member, Miriam Foley, had been close with Doe and would never believe that she was dead. She also didn't suspect Alan. She knew how much he loved his wife and how happy they were together. Maybe Doe ran away, she tried to tell herself. Her daughter, who lived in Nashville, kept saying that it had to be someone they knew, someone from church who'd taken Doe. Miriam, at first, refused to consider this. Ron Klein had been taping the phone calls from the kidnapper and having others listen to them. Miriam heard one of the calls and immediately thought she recognized the voice of Charles Lord. She told her friend Karen Johnson that she thought she knew whose voice was on the tape, but when Karen asked who, she wouldn't answer. She didn't want to falsely accuse someone. That would be terrible, she thought. However, she listened to the tape over and over and became convinced it was Charles Lord, but she did not report it. In March 1993, seven months had passed since Doe Roberts had been kidnapped. You may have noticed that the FBI had no leads and no suspects. Zero. Nada. Since the beginning of the investigation. Late that month, Ellen received a call from Agent Joanne Overall. She told him there had been a development in the case and to meet her at a restaurant in Germantown to discuss it. He arrived at 7 p.m., the appointed time, and waited. He waited for over two hours and no one showed up. A little after 9.30 p.m., a waitress came to his table to tell him he had a phone call. It was overall. Can you meet us at the Holiday Inn, she asked. When she said us, Alan knew she was probably with Inspector Ramona Swain. They were usually both present when he was interviewed. He drove to the hotel and was escorted to a room by Inspector Swain. Joanne Overall was waiting inside. She explained that he had been brought there for more questioning. He told her he didn't understand why she would have him wait three hours drinking coffee at a diner just to have him drive to another location to be interrogated once again. They had been through this several times over the last seven months, and his answers to their questions had never wavered. The investigators in the case were operating like the Keystone Cops, and Ellen was sick of it. They hadn't come up with any leads, were running around town chasing gossip when they were doing anything, and kept circling back to him as their only suspect even though there was no evidence that he had been involved. He had even volunteered to take a polygraph test and passed twice. Now they brought up the same two reasons they always did as to why they were fixated on him as their suspect. Once again, Agent Overall laid out her reasons. Number one, he was the last person to see Doe alive. That fact alone made him their prime suspect, she explained again. Yes, it was true he'd seen her last, 
except for whoever had taken her, and they still hadn't figured out who that was, Ellen told her. Second, she continued, case histories bore out the fact that nine times out of ten when a married woman went missing, the husband was responsible. That was the entirety of their case against Ellen. Ellen responded, Doe was my wife and best friend for 44 years. What motive would I have to get rid of her? I loved her. What could I have possibly gained? Ramona Swain then told him that they had recently been contacted by someone they believed was a reliable witness. This person swore that Ellen was responsible for his wife's disappearance. They then said that they did a background check and found that once he had underpaid on his income taxes. A man who would cheat on his taxes might cheat on his wife, Swain theorized. Ellen figured that she must be alluding to his relationship with Esther. They continued to question him, and the discussion kept going around in a circle. Finally, after 2 a.m., Ellen finally said that if he wasn't under arrest, he was going home, and the interview ended. On March 4th, the kidnapper called the local television station. He told the news anchor that Doe was dead. The call was taped, and after talking with the FBI, they aired the recording on the evening news. Finally, the public was getting to hear Charlie Chan for themselves. Over the next few weeks, he called the station several more times. A federal grand jury was convened to review the Doe Roberts kidnapping case. Ellen knew that they were trying to get an indictment against him. They met from March 19th to April 1st, but no indictments were handed down. In May, the kidnapper began calling another couple who were church members, Gus and Ann Richmond. Gus answered a few times, but could not understand the caller and hung up on him. He finally called, and when Gus picked up, asked to speak to his wife. When Ann got on the phone, she had trouble understanding him as well, and asked him to speak up. Oh man, what a shit show. He kept speaking louder and louder until he was practically screaming into the receiver. He was telling Anne to tell Ellen to pay the ransom. She explained that she didn't even know where Ellen was. After he began to feel that many of his former friends suspected him of hurting Doe and getting the cold shoulder from Doe's family, he'd left town for parts unknown. She believed he might be with one of his family members, but hadn't heard from him in some time. She explained this to the frustrated kidnapper. After hanging up, she called Agent Overall. She thanked her for the call and said she'd be in touch if she had any questions. She never called back. About 10 minutes after she'd finished speaking with the agent, Anne received a call from Sylvia Lord. Sylvia asked if she was okay. She'd heard that she'd received a call from the kidnapper. Anne didn't think about it at that time, but later would wonder how she knew. The next Sunday, Charles Lord came up to Anne when she was leaving church. He flashed a badge at her and told her she needed to come with him so they could talk. She refused. The badge looked fake, she would say. He continued to insist, and she said she wasn't going anywhere with him. You can forget it, Charles, she told him. Feisty old lady. That rocks. The next month, Anne Richmond was talking after church with another woman, Miriam Foley. They were discussing Doe Roberts' disappearance and all the strange phone calls, and decided to write down all the facts as they knew them. Anne had been a math supervisor for the Board of Education, and liked to think through things methodically and analytically. Now she and Miriam sat down to do just that. They put everyone's name who'd had a connection to the case on a piece of paper, most of whom were church members. They listed all the things that had taken place, including the phone calls, trips to meet the kidnapper, and everything else they could think of, and cross-referenced them with their list of names. 
they eliminated all the names of the people who could not be responsible for these events. At the end, only one name had an X in every category, Charles Lord. They couldn't believe it, or didn't want to. Miriam said that she wanted to take the paper home and show it to her husband to see what he thought. Several weeks later, Anne asked her about it, and she said that she and her husband had thrown the paper out. They never told anyone else about it and didn't bring it up again. Doe's family had taped all the television news reports that had aired, including the recording of the calls from the kidnapper and the reports Doe's family and friends had shared with reporters about the calls they had received. Now, one statement made William Paul, Doe's nephew, take notice. It was the report that Charles Lord had made saying that he'd been able to speak to Doe herself during one of the kidnapper's calls. He said Doe told him that she needed his help because Ellen wouldn't pay the ransom. William Paul knew that if Doe needed help and couldn't get it from Ellen, she would never call Charles Lord. She would call one of her family members who she trusted. He knew in that moment that Charles was lying. He was convinced for the first time after that revelation that Charles must be the kidnapper. He spoke with the family, and they decided to set a trap to prove it. They decided to have Doe's sisters pay a visit to Charles Lord. They wanted to do two things. First, to let Charles know that they would pay the ransom, and second, to give him a phone number that he couldn't know about any other way, except by their having given it to him. When they arrived, they realized that Charles must have alerted the FBI agents about the meeting. Within moments, Joanne Overall and Ramona Swain arrived. Jewel, one of Doe's sisters, asked Charles when he had spoken to Doe. He said it was on January 3rd. She asked him what she'd said. He said that she told him that Alan wouldn't pay the ransom so she could come home. Jewel then told him if Alan wouldn't pay, then they would. Charles was pretty quiet, unusual for him. He answered her questions in short sentences. However, his wife Sylvia could not stop talking. She kept telling stories about all the things she and Doe had done together. She seemed nervous and like she was trying to cover up this nervousness by talking way too much. After about 45 minutes, they walked outside to leave. Sylvia walked them to their car. She asked them for a phone number. Larry, Jewel's son, gave her his work number as well as his unlisted home phone number. The very next day, Jewel received a call from the kidnapper. He demanded $100,000 to return Doe. She was to go to a nearby motel and stay in the room while her son Larry was to go to a phone located at the nearby mall. The kidnapper also called Larry at the unlisted home phone number they'd given to Sylvia. It was Tuesday, June 8, 1993. Doe Roberts had been missing for 10 months. William Paul and Larry planned to be at the mall at the appointed time. They did not tell Alan Roberts or report it to the FBI. Larry waited by the phone as he was instructed, but no one called. They waited for several hours and then left. While Larry was waiting at the mall, the kidnapper called Larry's wife at home. Now he instructed her to tell Larry to bring the money to the Days Inn Hotel. He also said to bring medicine for Doe. She in bad shape. She need medicine, he said. He then gave her the following instructions. He gave her four names and phone numbers to call. They belonged to Ronald Klein, Carl Johnson, Charles Lord, and Tim Foley. They were to call each one of the numbers and ask the person what they knew about the Roberts woman. One would know, and from him, they'd find out how to get her back. 
Four of Doe's male relatives, Larry, Uncle Leonard, Ray Dunn, and William Hall, arrived at the Days Inn Motel on Thursday, June 10th at 7 p.m. They had reserved two adjoining rooms. At 8 p.m., Larry placed the first phone call to Ronald Klein. Identifying himself as Doe's nephew, he asked him if he had any information about his aunt. He said he did not. Next, he called Carl Johnson with the same results. He had no information and didn't know why his name would be put forward as someone who did. Next, he called Charles Lord at home. He said he was told that Charles might have information about Doe. Yes, I do, he answered, but he said he couldn't talk over the phone. His phone was bugged. He asked Larry where he was. He gave him his location, and Charles Lord said he'd be right over. When he arrived, he was tense and demanded to know if the FBI had been called and if the room was bugged. Larry answered no to both. He then asked if Larry had the money. When asked how he knew about the money, Charles became very defensive. Then he said that William Paul was not supposed to be there. The kidnapper had wanted only him and Larry's mother, Jewel, to be present. Again, Larry asked how he knew that. Charles then lost it and began stomping around, raising his voice. He then denied he'd said that Jewel was supposed to be there, although both men had clearly heard him say it just moments before. Charles said they had to go to another location and try to get Larry to go with him. He refused. Charles became more adamant, and he and William Paul got into a shoving match. Charles' shirt tore, and William Paul's clothes were also in disarray. That's when Charles saw that William Paul had a gun holstered in his waistband. He looked scared. He still tried to persuade Larry to leave with him. I've got the money, Larry finally told him, but I'm not going anywhere with you. Charles then left. William Paul called Ramona Swain right after and asked her to meet him. He told her what had gone down at the hotel and explained how they'd trapped Charles and gotten proof that he was most likely the kidnapper and definitely the person making the ransom calls. She told him he was wrong. He finally convinced her to at least have the FBI check into Lord's finances. What they found made her finally see the light about Charles Lord. Lord had often spoken about an earth-moving business he ran. It was discovered that he'd taken loans out from a credit union using bulldozers as collateral. At the time of his retirement, the loans amounted to over $400,000. However, when they checked out the bulldozer serial numbers, they were found to be fake numbers. He appeared to be guilty of the federal crime of obtaining loans through false and fraudulent means. They then looked into his role on the church's finance committee. He had begun embezzling money from the church's accounts to try and cover his own debts. It was discovered that the church's scholarship fund, building fund, and certificates of deposit were all gone. All the accounts had been cleaned out. On August 27, 1993, Charles Lord was arrested for the kidnapping and murder of Doe Roberts. To avoid the state seeking the death penalty against him, Lord agreed to confess to the crime and lead authorities to Doe's body. It was further discovered that Charles Lord had stolen over $86,000 from the church as well as obtained a $300,000 loan from the Defense Depot Credit Union before his retirement. He had taken Doe Roberts in order to collect ransom to get him out of the financial hole he'd dug for himself. However, some also believe that Doe might have discovered his theft and confronted him. Some thought that Doe might not tell anyone at first, but encouraged Charles to make it right. She was that kind of person. If so, he might have killed her to keep her quiet. 
In total, Charles confessed three separate times, with varying degrees of truthfulness. He admitted to having disguised his voice and called the Roberts home the day before the kidnapping, posing as the potential buyer of the house on Orr Road. He knew it would take Ellen out of the house, where he would be at least 20 minutes away. A short time after Ellen left, Doe had gone outside to retrieve the mail. Lord was waiting, and when he saw her, he drove up and told her that Ellen had been in an accident. He could take her to him, he said. She ran inside to grab her purse, leaving the mail in the cart and the garage door open, and got into his car. Once they drove down the road, he grabbed her by the neck and pushed her head down into the seat, telling her not to make any noise or he'd kill her. She told him she would do as he said. He then strangled her and threw her body over a bridge and into the river. Later that day, he called Ellen and demanded the ransom. Divers were called to try and retrieve her body from the muddy, murky waters of Wolf River. They combed the river beneath the Alex Spiller Bridge from 1.30 to 4.30 p.m. until a thunderstorm began. They began the search again the next day, but after another full day, it was determined that her body could not have been thrown in where Lord had confessed to dumping her. They began to interrogate him again, explaining that if he continued to lie to them, they would seek the death penalty. Finally, he told the whole story. After he drove away with her in his car, he hid her by holding her down, as he'd said. She asked him what he was doing, and he told her not to make another sound. She asked about Ellen, and he told her that there was nothing wrong with Ellen. He just needed to take her somewhere. He said she was quiet and compliant. Doe's family would believe this account. Lord continued to say throughout his interview that Doe didn't try to fight or yell or call attention to herself in any way. Her niece recalls that Doe and Ellen had once been robbed while working at one of their auto parts stores. Doe always told her that should anything like that ever happen, it was best to just agree to their demands and give them what they wanted. It was the best way to come out of that kind of situation alive, she'd said. Lord then drove her to his house. He had an apartment located above the garage that was detached from the house. He thought his wife was gone, but when he arrived, her car was in the garage and he momentarily froze. She didn't come out or call to him, so he realized that she hadn't seen him arrive. He took Doe up the garage steps and into the apartment. He had prepared the apartment by placing a wooden high back chair near the bed. He sat her in it and used prepared strips of rags to tie her arms and legs to the chair. He then secured a belt around her middle that held her in the chair. He put duct tape around her eyes, but didn't cover her mouth. He told her not to make any noise or he'd use a gag. He knew she suffered from asthma, and this would probably terrify her. She agreed not to make any noise, so he didn't gag her. Interesting note, he duct taped her eyes. This possibly was because he didn't want her looking at him. She already knew where she was, so there was no reason to cover her eyes, except He knew her, and she knew him, and it probably made him more aware of the horrible deed he was committing, and it bothered him that she was actually witnessing what he was doing to her. He continued to tell her not to make a sound. He didn't want to hurt her, but he'd have to if she yelled or screamed. She promised she wouldn't. I would imagine that the fact that someone she knew so well was doing this had to come as a huge shock to Doe, and because it was a shock, she was not thinking very clearly. If she was, she'd have to know that he could not let her escape with her life. How could he unless he wanted to get caught? She knew him. Did she really think he'd ask for a ransom? Her husband would pay it, and then he'd let her go home? There was no turning back once he took her away from her home. 
He had to know that he was going to kill her, and she must have been in too much shock or denial to believe that this was possible. Charles told her to stay quiet, and he went downstairs so as not to cause his wife to question why he was gone so long. He went in the house to tell her he was home and that he had some things to work on in the garage. She told him not to be too long as she was preparing lunch. He then said he went back upstairs and forced Doe to swallow sleeping pills that he'd set aside. He also had some pain pills that he thought would knock her out for a while. He waited for about 15 minutes after he drugged her, and he said she began to pass out. He then went downstairs and had lunch with his wife. He returned less than 30 minutes later, and she was still knocked out. He then laid her on the bed and took all of her clothes off of her. He then cut all the metal off of her clothes, buttons from her skirt, metal fasteners from her bra, etc., because he planned to burn her clothes in his burn pile. She had brought her purse into the truck, and he retrieved it and also took anything out that he thought would not burn completely and placed them with the other items. He said she was still passed out and now naked. He continued to go back and forth from the house to the garage. About 2 p.m., she was starting to wake, and he forced her to take more pills. Around 5 p.m., he told his wife he had to go to the hardware store, and that's when he left to call Alan to demand the ransom. Later that night, he said he returned to the garage apartment. He thought he must have given her too many pills because she was in an almost comatose state. His wife went to bed, and he returned to the apartment and had sex with Doe while she was unconscious. Around midnight, he smothered her with a pillow, killing her. They had his confession, but they thought it was mostly bullshit. It was extremely unlikely that he was going to be able to keep her quiet for that many hours. And sleeping pills and pain pills might make her sleepy or groggy, but probably not comatose. What is more likely is that he killed her soon after taking her into the garage apartment. The fact that he admitted to raping her while she was in an almost comatose state makes me think that she was dead when he committed this act upon her. The FBI believed that the plan was all along to kill her and then try and trick Alan into paying a ransom. The proof of this was that he admitted to preparing a pit on his property to bury the body in. He had also purchased lime and concrete, lime to put over the body to decompose it faster and concrete to cover the pit. That night he carried her body down the garage stairs to the pit. He then poured two sacks of lime over her and covered it with dirt and leaves. The next day, he told his wife he was going out to work on the compost pile. He dug out the dirt and then poured a few bags of ready-mixed concrete in the pit and then covered that with the dirt and leaves. He thought that if anyone was to dig in that area and hit hard concrete, they would think it was a large rock and stop digging. He then took the metal from her clothing and the other items from her purse and drove around throwing out the items along various roads to get rid of them. He found about $150 in her purse and kept it. He said he didn't have any hatred or animosity towards Alan. He just chose his wife as the victim because Alan had money and could pay the ransom. He also said he had a great deal of respect for Doe. Once, when his wife was sick, he said, Doe had brought her hot soup for lunch. No, I didn't hate Doe Roberts, and I wasn't in love with her, he explained. Doe Roberts was a fine person. The authorities did wonder how much Sylvia Lord knew about the disappearance and death of Doe Roberts, but in exchange for his confession, his lawyers had prosecutors agree not to seek charges against her. She was also not sought for the money her husband had embezzled. 
She continued to live in Eads and spoke to no one after her husband's arrest. She continued to support him and was in court when he pled guilty. She would later file for divorce, but only so the creditors he'd defrauded couldn't seize their marital property to pay for his debts. In the eyes of the law, it was not a true divorce, but a legal separation. In this way, she was also able to continue to receive his full government pension. She continued to visit him at the Turney Correctional Facility where he is incarcerated for life for kidnapping, murder, and rape. Sheriff's deputies arrived to uncover the pit where Doe Roberts had been buried. They slowly removed the cement pieces and found her body buried 18 inches deep where she'd been for the last year. Her body was remarkably well-preserved due to a mistake that Lord had made. He thought that by using regular lime, it would help to decompose the body faster. If he'd used quick lime, this would have been the result. But regular lime produced the exact opposite effect. Instead, it had kept her body intact. It was sent to the University of Tennessee Medical School, where an autopsy was performed. There was no visible wounds or sign of a violent death, so they believed the cause of death to be suffocation, as Lord had confessed to. A toxicology screen failed to show any other drugs in her system. Another reason I don't believe the knockout pill story. Alan had stopped attending Eads Methodist Church and instead began attending a Baptist church with Esther. He resigned his church membership in Eads Methodist formally in September of 1993. He and Esther had grown close, but she reported that he still burst into tears whenever they visited a place that reminded him of his and Doe's time together. Because of this, and because many of his former friends had stopped talking to him when he was under suspicion, he decided to move away. He'd begun spending more time with her in a nearby town where her family lived and decided to buy a plot of land there. He would build them a house, he promised. Doe was buried in Memorial Park Cemetery in Memphis in a bright red casket that Alan picked out for her. He had it covered in red roses. Almost 500 people attended her funeral. Agent Joanne Overall was never convinced that Alan was guilty. However, Inspector Ramona Swain was, even after he passed two polygraphs and even after Charles Lord confessed and was convicted of the crime. She was awarded the Deputy of the Month Award from Shelby County for her, quote, sense of dedication and perseverance, and they said that it was because of her that the mystery was solved. Larry Knox, Doe's nephew, who was instrumental in trapping Lord into revealing that he was making the ransom calls, was awarded the $25,000 in reward money for information leading to Doe's recovery. Alan Roberts and Esther Hammond were married on May 26, 1994. They built their home on the two-acre plot of land that he had purchased. Five years into their marriage, he gave Esther a white Maltese puppy that she named Sugar, and she became a part of their little family. Alan Crawford Roberts died October 16, 2005, at the age of 78. He had 43 happy years married to Doe and 11 happy years married to Esther. He is buried next to his beloved wife, Doe, at Memorial Park Cemetery. Final thoughts. I find this case fascinating because of how involved the whole town was in solving the crime. Even though it was almost near impossible for her friends and family to initially believe that one of their own could harm Doe, even when the facts were staring them in the face, 
they were eventually able to not only accept it, but set out to prove to the FBI that they were right. While the local sheriff's department and the FBI bumbled around without any clues, leads, or suspects, a few regular citizens were able to pull together, come up with a plan, and carry it out successfully to root out the murderer. Now that's what I call making America great. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I want to thank my sister Yolanda Norris for leading me to this very interesting case. She was looking up information for her own podcast and found this and thought it would fit into this series. So I appreciate her letting me take this one. Thanks, sis. And you should check out her show, Not Perfect or Functional, a podcast where sarcasm and humor collide when a married couple meet to discuss true crime, sports, pop culture, and whatever else pops into their crazy heads. Check it out. Also, I want to give a big thank you to a couple more people. Dina Marie from Twisted Philly for creating some awesome artwork for some upcoming projects I'm working on. She's crazy talented and her podcast is so darn good. Some people are just too, too talented and Dina is definitely one of them. And thank you to Haley Gray from Murder Road Trip for helping me put together my merch store. Products will be available to purchase soon and I'll share those links on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Haley rocks, and so does Murder Road Trip. Check out her adventures with her ever-present mascot, H.H. Gnomes, as well as a special guest each episode. Maybe even me in the future. And finally, a big thanks to all the new and continuing Patreon supporters. I want to especially thank all the other podcasters who become my supporters. It's so great how in the podcasting community, we all help each other out. Show them some love, listen to these great podcasts, or if you already do, subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you to The Minds of Madness, Murder Road Trip, True Crime Fan Club, Generation Y, The Peripheral, Pleasing Terrors, California Dreaming, and The Fall Line. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Mm-hmm.